So as we uh, open God's word together, let's just ask for, for God's help one more time. Father, we, we know that you speak, <clears throat> excuse me, speak primarily through your word, um, that you haven't left us in the dark. The, the scriptures are a gift to us, a gift of grace, that, that we're, we're not wondering who you are or wondering how we're to live our lives. We know we don't have everything, we don't know everything, but, but God, you've, you've chosen to speak through this, this word. And we know it's sufficient, we know it's authoritative, we know that when it's open and when it's preached, God, the Holy Spirit comes and is, is living and active through it, um, seeking us out, uh, convicting us, teaching us, speaking to us, comforting us. And so, God, have your, your way with us here this morning. As we open the scriptures, may you illuminate our hearts and our minds to hear and receive and respond to what you'd want us to do, God. Help us not just be hearers of your word, but also doers as well. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So about uh, 10 years ago, um, when my wife and I and our little child, uh, Noah, who's now a, a big child, uh, was thinking about planting a church in Kansas City, um, I, I began to do some, some research and, uh, and, you know, it's the Midwest and, you know, kind of kind of close to the Bible Belt. So you think, you know, I mean, do they really need a church in Kansas City or the Midwest? It seems like, isn't everybody Christian? Don't we live in America, right? And, um, and I did some, some study and, and realized that 50% of the Kansas City metro area is uh, religiously unaffiliated. Um, and so don't claim any religion, don't really go to church, don't really have any connection to, to Christ or any other uh, religious uh, authority or organization. That's about a million people. There's about 2 million people in Kansas City. Um, there's about 20% evangelical Christians in the Kansas City metro area. I think that's probably even lower. Um, I'll, I'll tell you why I think that is in just a minute. Um, in America alone, there's, there's about 85 million uh, religiously unaffiliated people uh, in general, uh, which are about 30% evangelical. I think that number's uh, way low too, and I'll, I'll tell you why in just a minute. Um, and, and so there's about 100 million non-Christians just in America alone. There's about 300 plus million people in America alone. It's, it's the fifth largest mission field in the world. And yet, we constantly say that, you know, missions has to happen somewhere else, that, that, that America is a Christian nation. And, and, and albeit it may be founded on some Christian principles, but the, but the reality is, and, and if we were just to be honest here this morning, if you were to think about your coworkers and think about your neighbors, is that these, these numbers maybe don't align as, as much as we, we think they, they do. Um, because that also doesn't count you know, nominal Christians and those who just checked a box that said, yeah, I went to church at a wedding this year or a funeral, so I must be a Christian, or my parents were Christian, so if I had to choose which box to check, I would check this one. And, and, and so that doesn't include the, 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 those that, that aren't Christians, right? Because cause being a Christian is not about attending church. It's included in that, but being a Christian means that you've been born again by the Spirit of God. It's going from death to life. It's not about church attendance. I mean, a lot of people go to church, right? That doesn't mean they're Christians, right? There's a lot of people that, 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 that would say, yeah, I, I know about this Jesus, but it doesn't mean that they follow him or they obey him or they, they worship him, right? And so what I want to encourage us as we begin 2019 and begin to think about is that this mission field that we've been called to here as a church and in Kansas City and in our world, that nothing has really changed. That these numbers, even as I've looked at them again, are very much the same. That almost every other person you encounter in, in, in Kansas City probably has no connection at all to any kind of religion or the Christ that you and I worship. And so this is what, what really, really brought us here. But, but I'm not a big numbers guy, and I don't want to just say, well, the stats, and we should just, because the stats say, let, let's get excited about Jesus. But, but, but here's, here's the thing, is that 
the question is then, then what do we do? How do we reach people that don't know Christ yet? How do we make disciples? That's been our command, Matthew 28, right? That's the command of Scripture, the command of Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations. What does that look like in, in a world that, that maybe doesn't, isn't friendly to the gospel, isn't friendly to Christianity? Now, when we began this church, there was a couple things that were always stirring in my mind and, and things that I saw in the church, churches I was a part of and, and churches others had been a part of is this, a couple options is like, okay, well, we have really bad theology. So, so what we need to do is we need to make sure that our theology is not bad anymore. That we get our doctrines right, we get our teaching right. Yes, that's good and amen. Yes, but, but the, the idea is if we just get our theology right, we just get our doctrine right, that somehow people are just going to naturally flock through our doors. But there's a lot of churches that have great theology and, and preach the scriptures and preach the gospel, and yet no one seems to care. Now, the opposite could be, could be true. It, it, it is that, that, yes, we need to get our theology right, but maybe we need to lessen our theology. Maybe we need to make it more palatable for people. So, so that if we want people to come in our churches, is we need to just throw out doctrine, throw out the Bible, and say, you know, look, what does the culture say is, is new and relevant? Let's just look, capitulate to that, and then people will come in to the church. Let's just go loose. Anything goes. Now, another tactic that we could do is we just need to be better at marketing. So we need more lasers and smoke on the stage. We need uh, better programs. We need better websites, right? We, we, we need things that are going to attract people. Maybe a, a drama up here. Maybe I should get in a bathrobe and do a drama of some kind. We've all endured those, haven't we? So maybe it's a marketing problem. Maybe we haven't made Jesus look palatable enough. Maybe we haven't made the church look awesome enough. And so the world's just going, I don't want anything to do with that. You guys just don't meet my modern sensibilities. So that's another option that we can, can go. But I think the third option, and I think the third path, and, and what this series is about, and what our church is about, is what would it be to be a church that is attractive because of the gospel and the God in which we worship, but also the lives in which we live. That that would attract people in. That you and I would actually be an attractive community because of the joy that we have in Jesus. Because of the lives in which we live, the grace that we extend, the forgiveness that we send, the, the hospitable lives that we live, the, 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 the ways in which we love our neighbors as ourselves, the ways in which we, we live at work, and the ways we live, live in our neighborhood, that that would be the thing that would draw people in because the reality is what you win them with is what you keep them with. So we can, we can do lasers and smoke, and, and we, can, we can have better programs. It's not that we shouldn't talk about those things or think about those things, maybe not the lasers and smoke, but, but those are the things that we're going to have to keep the people. But if we were such an attractive people that people would come in because of the lives in which we live, they go, what is going on in you and through you? What is this thing about? I think we're going to have more opportunity to reach the 100 million plus people that don't know Christ as they go to bed. And that's always been my heart as your pastor. Because I've seen the other way. And I believe God has brought in you and many of you and continues to use you because of the attractiveness of our lives. Again, not perfection. And the attractiveness of the God in which we preach about and in which we worship about. We worship. That brings people in. I mean, wasn't that the, the case in the early church, right? Acts 2. Here's this new community of believers coming into the church and they were coming in because, you know, they had this fantastic preacher. They were coming in because they had the most beautiful, ornate church building. They came in because they had the best-looking website you've ever seen. And really fast, too. 
No lag at all. We know that's not true, right? They had nothing. They were the poorest of the poor. They were a fringe community, and yet people were coming in going, what's going on here? What is this Jesus that you worship and you talk about all the time? Why do you guys share each other's you know, possessions and love each other and forgive each other? What is the, the attractiveness that, that, that is going on here? What is this all about? And, and that's what brought people in was the attractiveness of the God that they worship and the attractiveness of their own lives. And so that's what this DNA uh, series is all about. And if you've been around our, our church at all, actually, if you look at our, these little banners on the side, you'll see servants and learners and worshipers and family missionaries are in the back. You can't see it unless you turn around. Um, these are what we call our five gospel identities. And so it's been a, a deep conviction of mine and others to say that what we need to do is, is not to say, hey, the church is just this, this place and we have to do these religious things, but to say, what does it look like to have a new identity in Christ and to live in such a way and to embrace this identity that it would be attractive to those around us? To, in a sense, not only declare the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, his, his life, his death, his resurrection, but also to demonstrate it through our lives in tangible ways. To, to create a true gospel-driven, gospel-centered culture that's not just confession, this is what I believe, but it's also how we actually live our lives and embody what we believe about this good news of Jesus and how he's, he's changed us. Because the church can often be defined by what it does. We do these things, we have these programs, we have these services, but the reality is the church is always defined by what God has done. That's where it begins. What God has accomplished for us. We are all here because we're trophies of God's grace. And then in light of that, now we go live different lives. We have a new identity, a new way of being, a new way of thinking, a new way of living in all of all of life. We see that in, in Galatians chapter 2. Just so you know, this, this sermon has a lot of text, so I don't have one main one, but I'm going to jump around a little bit. But, but Galatians chapter 2, 20, you don't have, to, don't have to turn there, but it just says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So the Apostle Paul is saying, I've been redeemed. I've been united with Christ. I, I, have a new, I am a new creation. It's no longer I who live, but now Christ lives through me by the power of the Holy Spirit. So everything that I do, everything that I am is about making him look great in my life. That's what Paul was always about, wasn't he? Just wearing that you know, big cape behind him and just standing on the mountaintop. To live as Christ, to die as gain. And he just couldn't stop that guy. But he understood his true identity. He understood that everything that I do, whether I'm at work, whether I'm with my friends, whether I'm with the church family, whatever I'm doing is, I, is no longer I who live, but now it's Christ who lives in me. So, so how do I make Christ look great in my life and everything that I do, everything that I am? And so we have this new identity in Christ. So what we're going to do for the next few minutes here this morning is we're going to look at um, our five gospel identities, that because we are now new creations in Christ, we now embody particular identities, that we are, uh, it's really who we are, it's not just what we do, but it's who we are at our core. And we're only going to spend time with three of them next week, we'll look at the last two. But, but the first three this morning we're going to look at, just for a few moments, is, is worshipers, is disciples, and family. And what that, that means and that entails. So, so we've called this series, We Are, because we are worshipers, right? And here's the reality. Everybody's a worshiper. You can turn with me to Romans 1. I'll, I'll spend a few, a few moments there. Romans chapter 1, that everybody's a worshiper. 
We, unfortunately, we've used this language as just a, a generic religious word. So it's like if you're a Christian or you're a Buddhist or you're whatever, you're a worshiper, but everyone else that doesn't go to church, they're not worshipers. They're just whatever. But the scriptures don't talk that way. And, and even if we use the, the definition of what a worshiper is, that's simply not true. Everybody worships. But the question is, what is the object of our worship? What do we bow down to? What do we sacrifice? What do we give time and affection and energy toward? That's really just what we worship. It could be God or it could be something else. Because Romans chapter 1, you might be familiar with this text. Paul says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So, so Paul uses general revelation and says that, that when you get up in the morning, you see a sunset, you see a sunrise, you see the, the, the retinas in your kid's eyes, you, you, you see a beautiful uh, piece of, uh, of art or a tree or, or something beautiful, you go, God has revealed his power, his nature, even through creation itself. So no one's without excuse. But here's what, where the problem is in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him, worship him as God or give thanks to him, but they became foolish and their hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is pleased forever. Amen. It's the great reversal, isn't it? So, so instead of worshiping the creator God who gave us all these good gifts to enjoy, the sunsets and the sunrise and your, your mother and your father and your, your spouses and your friends and your job and all these good gifts and, and guacamole for crying out loud and, and fajitas and, and good music and art and all these good gifts. So instead of worshiping the creator who gave us these things, we worship the creation. We put all of our sacrifice and our honor and our affection and everything into those things. But unfortunately, we know those things just never seem to give us what we think it they should give us, right? You can only eat so much food. You can only have so many relationships, right? And, and, and so these things begin to betray us. But, but see, everybody's a worshiper, but the question is, what is the object of our worship? So we all start on common... So when we talk about a gospel identity as a worshiper, it's not just in a, do we worship anything or anyone? We, we don't ever say, well, just stop. You know, Worship begins here and it ends here. We never stop worshiping something or someone. We're always laying our lives down, sacrificing, giving attention, energy, time to something or someone at all times and all places. But what is, is worship, though? How would we define it in, a, in, in the Christian sense? I, I love uh, Revelation 4. Um, that that kind of gives us a little, a little picture of what worship looks like. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 9, a little picture of the, the heavenly places, the uh, creatures worshiping God, bowing down before God, the, the, the Lord, and says, and whenever, uh, Revelation 4, 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who, live, uh, who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. 
And if, if you keep going in Revelation chapter 5, they praise God for being our Redeemer, the one who, the, the Lamb that was slain who redeemed us from sin and death and hell and the wrath of God. So, so what is worship? Well, worship is an, an English word. It just means worth-ship. It's what we think is worthy, what we think is valuable. It's offering our whole selves, our minds, our emotions, our will, and obedient service, motivated by the beauty of God in himself. Worship's about responding to what is most beautiful in our lives. That's what Revelation 4 is about. It's, it's them seeing this beauty, this, this amazement, this creator, this redeemer, and saying, you are worthy, you are great, you are amazing. That's what all of that worship is. It's responding to what we think is most beautiful and what deserves most honor and what deserves most glory. You, you've heard me say this before. I was actually, we had some friends in town, um, or some family in town, and they live about four, four uh, hours from the Grand Canyon. I don't know if you've been to the Grand Canyon, that big hole. Um, it's pretty amazing if you've never been. I, I got to go when I was like 19 or so, and that was the first time I ever went, and we were camping on the top of the Grand Canyon. And you just stand there, and you look, and you just go, it almost looks like a painting. Have you, have you been there? Like, that's not real, right? You just stand there. And you, but, but see, nobody in that moment, I, w- I wasn't flexing my muscles at that point. Going, oh, Grand Canyon, but yeah, have you seen this? Like, nobody does that, Right? But you see, that's a little bit of what worship's about, is that when you see the, the, the greatness, the grace, the mercy, the power, the beauty of God, you are stunned, you are in awe of who God is and what he, he's done, and you say, thank you, I can't believe you've done this, and who you are, there is no one like you. We see that all over the scriptures. When, <clears throat> in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the glory and the beauty and the power of God, what does he do? He goes, yeah, you're pretty awesome, God, but look at this. No, he's laid low. He says, I'm an unclean man that lives among a people of unclean lips. Here I am, use me, O oh God. So, so, so worship is always about a response to what is most beautiful and what is most, most worthy and, and, and what is most, um, what we treasure most in our lives. So everybody worships because everybody has something that they sacrifice to, they give attention to, they give affection to, they give resources to. But the question is, is it God or something else? And so part of our job as pastors and as leaders in this church is to help you live more fully into this identity as a worshiper. But this is also expressed in a couple ways. So to help you live further into that and understand that it's not just about worshiping on a Sunday morning, but that's included. So we, we worship God in a couple different ways. One is through corporate worship. Obviously, there's, there's specific times and places that we get together to worship God. Now, we've been worshiping all Monday through Saturday, and then we come on Sunday. We're still worshiping. It's just taking on a different frame. It's taking on a, a different, different look, isn't it? That doesn't stop. It's not like, okay, now at 10 o'clock, we're going to worship. Worship never stops. But it's going to take on a different frame. Now, in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews gives us a little encouragement to say, what is this, you know, why do we worship? What's, what gives us the motivation to do that? Why do we do that together? And, and, and earlier in chapter 10 of Hebrews, you know, he explains how Jesus was this once and for all sacrifice, that he was the high priest. Because in the Old Testament, you have these Old Testament sacrifices, which I'm so glad we don't have to do those anymore. You know, bring in your cow this morning, bring in your dove, and, you know, cut its throat, just messy. Janitorial staff, holy cow. We've got to cow blood spill over there. Can someone take care of that? 
thought I'd go bigger this morning. But, um, <laughs> but Jesus has become that for us. He has shed his own blood, the once and for all sacrifice. So, so Jesus has secured everything that, that we need. He's forgiven us of our sins. He's covered those by his death and by his resurrection. So that when we come on a Sunday to gather together, that's already been completed for us. The forgiveness is already available. It's nothing you and I have to do. But notice what it says in, uh, later in, in chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who was promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And what it means is the day when Jesus is going to return and judgment's going to come. So we gather together because we have a future orientation, an eschatological, if you will, orientation is that we know that Jesus is returning. We know there's going to be a judgment day. And we also know that we're made and created for heaven, for eternity, to be with him forever. So, so our gatherings are, are, are kind of a, a practice, if you will, a rehearsal, if you will, for eternity. So that we can stir each other up and, and love each other, remind each other that, that this is who we are. This is our identity. We are worshipers of God. That we worship the one true God. But we can't do that just in isolation. We have to do it together. And that's why we preach from the word. That's why we have to celebrate the sacraments and we sing and we pray. As we, we do that and we fellowship together to stir each other up, to remind each other who we are in Christ. That we have an eternal vocation. <coughs> And, and what's silly about America, America, um, is this is a persecuted church. And this is why this letter is written. It's because they want to give up. They're, they're getting literally slaughtered. They're getting thrown into Colosseums and eaten by wild animals. And yet for us to get up at 10 o'clock to gather with the church is such a chore. I just don't know how we do it. Jesus, I am sacrificing for you this morning. I mean, I haven't even had coffee yet. And I'm coming. And I'm going to sing with God's people, right? I mean, we just need, I'm not trying to be guilty. I'm not guilting you. I'm not shaming you. What I'm saying is, we need to keep things in perspective here, don't we? Like, we have it really good and really easy, yet it's so hard just to be here, right? It's so hard to, to get here. I understand kids get sick. I understand their sickness. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm just saying, it's, it's kind of ridiculous to say, well, that's just a tack on to our, our lives and we get around to it. I'm spiritual already. I can just do God on my own terms. But we know it's not the same. I've never met a healthy Christian that doesn't gather with God's people, ever. What I always see is weird theology, arrogance, self-righteousness. I don't see people that are humbly submitting themselves to each other and saying, hey, you can speak into my life too, and there's things in my life that aren't right. You need to speak into that. You need to challenge me on that. I need that as much as you do. We're not these lone ranger being Jesus frolicking through the woods. We need corporate worship. But worship also happens, not in just the corporate sense as we gather on Sunday. That's not the whole picture. It also happens in all of life. You, you've heard me mention this text many times over, but Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 1. Find it. Paul has just spent 11 chapters of the Bible explaining our justification of faith, our redemption, how this all works. And he says, in light of this redemption, in light of your faith, in light of uh, being invited in by grace, and you're justified not by your works, but by faith in Jesus, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So all the mercies you've seen, all the work that he's done for you, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is worship, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You're not going to conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by 
testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Living sacrifices all of life. And now I've seen the mercies of God. I've seen God's grace. And in light of that, now here I am, God, as a worshiper to you. In my home, in my job, with my thoughts, with my money, with everything that I am, this is an act of worship to you because I've seen how good you are. I've seen you are on, you, you deserve all honor and glory. I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And so we should ask questions like this. Since God is the most important, glorious thing in my life, how should I be acting and living in this area of my life? That's what worship is. Not only as we gather on Sunday, but throughout the week, when you, when you go to work on Monday, you should be constantly asking that question, since God is the most important thing, if he is, glorious thing in my life, how should I be acting and living in my life? Am I living as a sacrifice unto God? Am I embodying my identity as a worshiper of God? And believe me, you're not going to like the answers. More often than not. How am I living in this area of my life? Am I making Jesus look great? <laughs> Sound effects and will get free this year. Right? We don't always like the answer, right? But that's what grace is about, isn't it? But that's why we keep coming. God, if I'm a, if I'm a worshiper of God, that's who I am at my core. I've been bought at a huge price. That's my life is a living sacrifice to you in all things. I need to constantly be asking this question, or we might just be indifferent and don't care. Is this the way I'm handling my finances? Is that honoring God? The way I just spoke to my wife or my kids or the things I did at my job, did I steal that stapler thinking they owe me? What do I think about? What do I, how do I spend my, my time? These, these are all great questions to ask my embodying that this identity as a worshiper. Now, when it comes to worship, there's important pieces of this that we can't neglect one for the other. We can't say, well, it's all corporate worship or it's all, all of life worship, and here's why is if we neglect corporate worship, we're going to become kind of super spiritual and, and seek, you know, mainly emotional experiences rather than change lives in service to the world. That we can't neglect meeting together as some in the habit of doing as Hebrews says. Because sometimes we're, we're going to look for these, these kind of emotional experiences, these super spiritual experiences or, or whatever, but we're, we're not thinking about the idea that I've been changed to, to live as a, a living sacrifice as, as well. So it's not just one or the other. But, but also if we neglect all of life worship, we, we could we could become formal and lose the vital inner heart dynamic for service to the world. They need each other. We need to gather to hear the gospel again, to have our hearts continually changed to hear God's truth again, to hear God's promises again, to live a life worthy of Him. So it's not all just gathering together on a Sunday, but it's also how can my life be changed in a way that I can live that out throughout the week? Like God does care as much as you what you do right here and what you do at home. Somehow we made this weird sacred secular dichotomy. It needs to die. As if God doesn't care about your work, how you do your work, and how you talk, and how you spend, you know, what you do in the workplace or in your home, right? Those aren't, well, it's like, I gotta get to the next, you know, religious thing, or, or I gotta get to the next gathering, or I gotta get to next, you know, whatever it is. We need both of those things. But the sum of your faith, the sum of your life as a worshiper is not just in one of those spaces. It's both of them working together. So we are worshipers. We're also disciples. Disciples. So, so Jesus calls us to be his, 
You could call us pupils or disciples or apprentices. I love that imagery in, in the scriptures because, um, because disciples is used probably about 200 times in the New Testament, this word disciple, um, which has this idea of, of apprenticeship. And I know um, apprenticeships, uh, I would say they're probably not akin to internships if you've ever done an internship because um, internships are horrible. Um, internships typically, especially if you're at like a corporation, just means like get me coffee and do things that no one wants to do, nothing meaningful. Um, but an apprenticeship back in the day would be Jesus, let's imagine Joseph, who's a carpenter, teaching him his craft, teaching him how to be a carpenter. So, so come and, and watch, uh, resemble what I'm doing, uh, follow my, my lead in teaching him how to do something. And so when we think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, in many ways it's we're his apprentices. We, we follow him, we trust him, we resemble him, we honor him. We follow him wherever he leads, we listen to his voice. We take on his wisdom and we take on his character. So in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus calls his first disciples, notice what he does in Mark chapter 1, verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So when Jesus calls us, come and follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Well, there's a couple aspects to this discipleship. And one is understanding it's a relationship and it's all grace. Say those things together. It's a relationship and it's all grace. Here's why. In the first century, um, rabbis typically did not choose their students or their apprentices. Jesus was doing something very radical here, is that usually an apprentice or a pupil that wanted to work with a certain rabbi or learn from a certain rabbi and learn his teachings um, would go and seek him out and say, hey, rabbi so-and-so, can I be your apprentice? Can I learn from you? Can I learn your teaching? Can I learn your wisdom? But Rabbi Jesus, who's not just your typical rabbi, who is God and who is man at the same time, says, I'm the one going to find my disciples. I'm going to call them to myself. Well, what is that? It's a picture of grace. What does God do for us? He comes and finds us. It's not us just waiting for God for the invitation. He's saying, I'm going to find you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to do what you couldn't do for yourself. And so this was radical that he invites us, come and follow me into a relationship all by grace. And so if it means if he calls you into relationship by grace, guess what? The whole relationship is still centered on grace. This is where we get it backwards. Is we come to Jesus and then we think, now it's works. Now it's like i got to do these things and then maybe God will love me. i got to you know, be a good person and i got to you know, follow his commands. Of course we're called to obedience. We'll get to that in a second. But the whole relationship is based on grace and sustained by grace. Because we constantly fall short as his disciples know him. I think it's silly. It's like God call, calls us by grace, but then it's like, man, hey, but pull up your bootstraps. Now you're going to have to work. We'll see if this love is earned and owed. But yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He even died for his enemies. Because it's all grace. So a few more aspects of discipleship. It's also about ultimate allegiance. <clears throat> ultimate Allegiance. The, the disciples, they leave their, their work and they give a full attention to Jesus. They, they put aside their nets, their, their fishing business, and, and they give ultimate and supreme allegiance of their hearts. They, they want to serve and know and please and resemble this Jesus. 
And so Jesus becomes our preeminent passion and purpose in our lives. That's what being a disciple is. It's not there's disciples of Jesus and then there's non-disciples. There's just disciples. Those that are trusting, obeying, adoring, listening to, and trying to resemble their, their master. That's not an optional thing. That's not for super Christians. That's why we're, we're doing this series. These are our identities. We are disciples. We're, we're pupils connected to. We're apprentices connected to, learning from our master, watching our master, um, um, gazing at our master, trusting him, saying, God, help me have total allegiance to you in my life. Which also leads to another aspect, which is unconditional obedience. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus asks, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? That's a haunting verse, isn't it? So you call me Lord and Master? And you're my apprentice, but you don't want to do what I say. Now, a consultant gives you recommendations. You can choose to follow or not, since you still retain authority over your life. But discipleship, it means giving up that authority to Jesus and removing all conditions for full obedience to him. So if there's anything in our lives that we say, Jesus, I'll give you this, but I'm not giving you this. That's conditional. But here's the thing. And you, you've heard me say this for nine years. Because that sounds like, well, just listen and obey and don't question anything and just, you know, be quiet. But when you get up next to this Jesus and you see what he's asking you, and you get to know his character and his love and his grace and his mercy, you say, yes, Lord, wherever you ask, whatever you ask me to. When you understand that the commands are designed to enhance our joy, not crush our joy. And when you understand that God has given us these, these commands for our good and our joy, that when we try to live outside of God's best and his will and his ways, it just goes bad often for us. And we know that full well, don't we? Rather than saying, I submit to you, O God, as a disciple, lead and guide me. Because here's also where it gets a little, little tricky. Is that when, when Jesus asks you for some hard things, you basically say, no. Even from his word, we just go, no, no, I don't, I don't agree with that. Rather than saying, I don't maybe fully understand it fully yet, or... Maybe I have different views on this, but because I know that you're always after my good and joy, and that you love me, I'm willing to joyfully submit to your grace. So there's unconditional obedience. There's also a, a call to listen and learn from Jesus. We, we see that with the, the, uh, Mary and Martha in Luke 10, 38-42, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching. So Martha's running around crazy in hospitality and just like, oh, you know, she's just sitting there listening to you. There's nothing wrong with hospitality. That, that passage gets butchered all the time. You know, she was sinning. She wasn't sinning. But Jesus is saying, the good thing, the thing where you need to be uh, uh, is sitting at my feet, listening to my voice, listening to my ways, learning my character, learning my will, understanding more of who I, I am. And I think in obvious ways, one of the ways we do that is through the scriptures. A disciple, someone who's a diligent student of the Bible, Listening to his voice and his word. I think this sitting and listening as a metaphor, it also implies submission and attention. Constantly trying to keep our, our, our spiritual lives attuned and attentive to what God's doing, what he's saying through his word and through our lives and circumstances. 
Now, it is really difficult, I'll say this, if not impossible, to be a disciple if we don't believe that the entire Bible is authoritative. Because then we kind of do the pick and choose. Well, I like this, but I don't like this. This seems to contradict this, but this kind of does that. And, and, that, and this is why we want to be ferociously serious about the scriptures and preach the scriptures and discuss the scriptures in the city group and have men's and women's studies and, and, and people getting together in coffee shops to, to be after the scriptures because, because you will be amazed how much life the scriptures can, can give us. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God that is revealed in the Bible. But if we begin to omit things, we begin to downplay things, basically it's our way of saying, Lord, you can't speak into this area of my life anymore. And that's hard for all of us, isn't it? Like, like if you're a serious student of the Bible and you actually open it up you know, on a fairly regular basis during the week, I can tell you most of the time when I do that, it's usually like, oh, I stink at that, oh yeah, that's really hard, and oh yeah, help me, oh God. It's not like, nailed it, nailed it, Nailed it. What's next? What do you got, God? Anything else? Nice try. Right? Never. Right? It's, it's the whole time. It's like repenting and confessing and, and help me be a better husband. Help me be a better father. Help me be a pastor. I can't have that thought. I can't believe I wanted to strangle that old lady last night. I mean, there's just all these things that are just swirling around in our heads. However, we lay ourselves bare before the scriptures and the Holy Spirit comes. He actually does lay us bare. He, he shows us the inclinations of our hearts all the way down to our bone and our marrow, as the scripture said. Like a double-edged sword, he just fillets us open and goes, how are we doing? But here's what I've learned about Jesus over the years. Is that he's not a butcher. This is actually funny. My wife is a nurse and she used to work with a surgeon named Dr. Butcher. Which pretty much says you have your life planned out for you. Right? But Jesus is not a butcher. He's a gentle surgeon. Because when he sees those things, he already knows those things about us and the things in which there's a disconnect and the things we're falling short. He doesn't come with an axe and a sword. He comes with a gentle scalpel. He says, let's, let's work on that a little bit. Let's begin cutting that little piece out. Some of you use the, the analogy of a house that when we become Christians, there's all these rooms in this house, but God doesn't go in like a, you know, a huge uh, renovation project and, and fix all the rooms. Right? So I can be a Christian and still be angry. So I can be a Christian and still have addictions. So I can be a, a Christian and still have all kinds of relational problems because he goes house to house like a gentle surgeon and begins sanctifying, weaving those things out, working on those things. And some of those things are going to be for life. But it's all by grace and it's all by love. And as disciples, we should welcome This is our God, but I'm welcoming. You said consider pure joys, you know, in trial. That's really hard when you're walking in a trial. But I welcome it because I know you always have the best for me. So we listen, we learn. We're, we're called to suffer and serve. It means a, a life of, of simplicity because of Him, a life of sacrifice, not complaining about it, right? Like we should should love Christ so much that the, the 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 attraction to things that are temporal, the attraction to things that we think are going to satisfy in this world, doesn't mean we don't have things, we don't have a house, we don't have you know stuff or whatever it is. 
But we're called to live these sacrificial, simple lives of generosity. Because Jesus is now our treasure. Don't seek after things that are going to rust and, and, and be destroyed and stolen. Because here's the thing. I know about your stuff and my stuff. In about 50 years, it's all going to be in a junk pile somewhere. Or at the thrift store up here. <coughs> my kids are going to be sorting it out. Fighting over it. Well, I'm keeping this bacon plaque. That's mine. But it's a, a call to sacrifice and simplicity for the sake of Christ, our greatest treasure. And again, it doesn't mean we don't have things. But we use those things in proper order. And it's also a call to mission. We're called to what some have called gospel messaging, proclaiming the good news, the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. You see that in Luke 10. We also see gospel neighboring in Luke 10, 25, the, the good Samaritan. We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's part of being a disciple of Jesus. Living out of that identity. So disciples are trusting and obeying and resembling and learning and listening and serving and sacrificing and telling others about our great king. It's part of all of our calling. To be a worshiper, to, to, to live uh, as a spiritual sacrifice, to, to make Jesus look great in our lives as we gather together and also as we go out into the world as a living sacrifice, but also as disciples, we become his apprentices. We, we grab onto him, we trust him, we resemble him, we look to him, we become more like our master in all things. We give our, our obedience to him and trust to him and our allegiance to him in all things. That's just who we are. And then last, we're a family. We're a family. I'll just close with this. We, we spent uh, a great time, in, uh, quite a bit of time in Ephesians, uh, so I won't spend a lot of time on, on this one, but, but one of the things that, that we see in Ephesians is that God, when he redeems us, he doesn't just redeem us individually and then just kind of say, go you know, read your Bible and pray. He's, he redeems us into a, a new family. And, and I love the, the family imagery. I know this can go sideways because we start thinking about our, our biological family and we start, well, I can't see God as a father because my dad was a jerk and you know, I, I can't see Jesus as my brother because my brother was a jerk or whatever it is. But this is the language that we have in the scriptures. And I think that the familial language is really helpful to understand our role as, as God's people, as a family. Because when you, when you think about a family, um, you know, are we a family because we sleep in the same house, we eat together, we do dishes, we share a budget? Does that make us a family? It's defined by activity? Sure. Okay, we, there's things we're, we're called to, activities we're called to. You know, some do your chores, whatever it is, meet together. But are, are, are we, are we a, a family because we have the same parents, the same last name, we belong to one another? We're defined by our being. It's actually the latter, not the, the former. It's because we have this being. We, we have the same name. It's our family. We don't choose our families, right? Whether good or ill, but that's the family that we have. It's our family of origin, right? And it's not based on activity. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they, right? Or are we a family because our parents gave birth to us or adopted us? Defined by origin. I think a healthy family would be all of these things. That our parents birthed us, adopted us, so we belong to them. We're all related. We share an identity, so we belong to each other. And we do what families do together. We live life together, driven by love, right? So it's all those things, right? We have all the family benefits, right? And that's exactly what, what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, talks about the household of God in Ephesians 2, 18 and 21. That we've been redeemed and now we are members of the household of God. 
And so we're the, we're the church because we have this Father that's made us His children through His life and His work of Jesus giving us new birth by His Spirit. We also have a new identity as children of God. We've been united and adopted to Him. And we also now live out lives of love and good deeds because we are His children who are deeply loved already. That's what a family of God is about. We're not in the family because we earned it by grace. It's been given to us as a gift. But now as a response to that family, we do have responsibilities to live in certain ways, to act in certain ways. That's what these identities are all about. These identities, I don't want you to hear this this morning, that it's somehow my way of making God happy, but it's now living in light of what God has already called me into, what God already says I am. I am now a worshiper of God. I am now a disciple of God. I am now the part of the family of God, how would we live differently? How would we, we, we function differently on Monday if we knew this truly was our core identity? Your core identity no longer is Cerner employee or German or male or female, black or white or born in this place, went to this high school. Those aren't our core identities anymore. Our core identity is ultimately in Christ, which flows down into these to say, I am now a worshiper of the living God. I am now a disciple of Jesus who's calling me to come and follow him, to listen, to trust, to obey. I am now part of the family of God. Now, as the family of God, it means we also have responsibilities to help each other spiritually and even to meet each other's needs. What if we began to actually see each other as brothers and sisters? That your biological family is important, but you also have responsibilities for your spiritual family too. Because we're a bunch of families of families. Whether you're single, you're a family, or just two of you, or one of you, whatever it is. Yes, we have our own family, but then we have a family of families that we are responsible to. This is our spiritual church family. So I should care just as much as your discipleship as you should care just as much about mine. And if there's a need and I have a need, or you have a need, I should care about your needs just as much as I should care about my own needs. That's how a family functions. A good one, <laughs> right? Now I don't tell my, my kids, like, Sorry, there's just no food. You're just on your own. I don't know, I saw a cat roaming in the backyard. Maybe you can take him out with your slingshot. <laughs> what does it tell you about it? No, we, we have responsibilities to meet that need, hunger, whatever that, that need is. And so, the next two weeks, what we're doing is we're inviting you and, and me and all of us as a church family to um, consider praying uh, as we launch 2019, hopefully got one of these on the way in. If you didn't, should be uh, one on the way out or one out there. Um, just some questions and some scriptures and some ways to kind of reflect on and pray uh, individually, but also as a family, you can can do this any way that you you feel comfortable. Maybe take one one a day, or or you know, I mean, don't I wouldn't do them all. Maybe just take one one of the identities um, a couple days during the week. Read some of the scriptures. Think about some of the questions. Do it with your family, do it with, with friends, do it individually, whatever it is. But what we're really beginning to, to pray about, and you've heard us talk about this, is church planting in 2019. And, and one of the catalysts that we, we talk about is really the, what's going to make uh, that happen or what's going to help us do that well is actually us living more deeply into our gospel identities. It's not about just doing more or raising more money, but it's saying that if we really believe, which we're going to talk about next week, servants and missionaries, if we really believe that we're called to go out and proclaim good news to our neighbors and to love our neighbors, but also to proclaim good news, then, then church planting should always be part of who we 
who we are. And so we want to encourage each other to, to gr grow and, 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 and go deeper into those identities that are already ours in Christ. And to be an attractive people and continue to be an attractive people in Kansas City. And I don't mean just attractive as a beauty, but our lives are attractive by living these out together. So we'll talk a little bit more about that um, next week as we talk about servants and being missionaries.